0: Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. It's Tuesday, October the 3rd, and this is Narrative Wars. In today's program, what do Tucker Carlson and Bill O'Reilly have to say about Fox News and the future of cable news programming? Also, President Donald Trump keeps winning by not listening to the consultants as he skips the second GOP presidential debate. And the co-founder of Greenpeace, Dr. Patrick Moore, is going against the narrative by offering some unusual criticism Also, there's good news in Dallas, Texas, as Mayor Eric Johnson has recently made a major announcement, which is surprising everyone. Finally, just in time for Halloween, a true story about coming back from the dead, as we conclude today's program with The Bigger Picture. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this.
1: Are sick and tired. Hey.
0: Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, narrative wars with your host Jeffrey K. Lyons. We, the people, are sick and tired. So tired. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again. Today is Tuesday, October the 3rd, 2023. And we're going to start off with this first piece. Now, Tucker Carlson recently interviewed Bill O'Reilly on his new program, Tucker's new program, that's Tucker on X, the two former Fox News hosts uh, talk about their time at the Fox Network. Let's take a listen to this. This is cut number 1A. But here's what people don't understand
2: about television news. It's like professional football, the NFL. If you are a talent, both Carlson and I are talent, that's the what they call us, because we're on television. You have to beat the shows that are up against you. Right? right? So when I was at Inside Edition, I had to beat Wheel of Fortune, or whoever I was competing against, okay? Or at least come close. You have to beat the other team. And if you do beat them, like you did and I did, then you're rewarded with money. Not love, not loyalty, money. It's a pure play.
0: So there's a number of things uh, in this uh, brief clip. First of all, he's comparing a television news host, a talking head to a football team and that uh, you have to beat uh, the other team. But in this case, He's not talking about a football team beating another team on a field. What he's saying is that the television program itself, uh, the entire program and everything it has to offer, needs to beat other programs that are being aired and available for the public viewing uh, at the same time. Now, this is the old way Of thinking of television uh, because way back, you wind the clock way back uh, to uh, the beginning days of television in the 1950s, the early 60s, and uh, you only had a few networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and then a few other markets also had public television. So that'd be four. And so This is what Riley is, O'Reilly is uh, referring to is this model. You have to beat what's also out there. And so you have to also understand that television is really in the business of advertising. They're in the ad, they're in the business of making money. And uh, news content is uh, just another way of drawing in an audience and making money. So television is all about making money. And there's a saying in the TV business. Now, I also worked as a television salesperson for a few years at a small independent television station. And uh, the saying is that TV is in the business of selling eyeballs to advertisers. So what does that mean? It means that it's all about the ratings. It's all about what sort of audience can you deliver to a potential advertiser. And that's why if you see children's uh, programming, obviously you're going to see a lot of TV ads aimed at kids. But what do you see during news programs? Typically, uh, your 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock news, your local uh, news channels. Well, you see a lot of ads aimed at an older audience because that's the audience that watches uh, the broadcast news uh, during the uh, local time slot, 6, 7, and, of course, the uh, 10 p.m. slot. Now, things are changing. Uh, they changed up uh, decades ago with cable television, but there is another change that we're also going to discuss uh, coming up when we listen to this next clip. But before we get to that, Roger Ailes was the person that got Fox News going, and Roger Ailes was there for decades and... Uh, Fox News, of course, did very, very well with Roger, and uh, Bill O'Reilly refers to him in in this interview. Ailes left, and uh, he has since passed away, but Ailes left Fox News, and everything changed. The management changed, and sort of that environment where O'Reilly flourished, it changed, and so O'Reilly was out the door. This really isn't anything unusual It happens in local TV markets all the time. Stations are bought, stations are sold, and talent changes. Now, Tucker was moved out also because of the change in management. And the Murdochs uh, were looking for something different. Uh, Many are saying that uh, Fox is leaning more to the left now. And uh, there's a lot of uh, evidence uh, that is pointing in that direction. One of the big... Changes was when Fox was the first to call Arizona for uh, Joe Biden, and uh, the other major networks had not done that at all. And uh, this uh, got, uh, of course, a lot of feedback. A number of Fox viewers were upset uh, because votes were still remaining to be counted, and yet they called Arizona for Biden. So Tucker was moved out just like. O'Reilly there was a change in management change in goals there and uh, Tucker was anchoring the eight o'clock slot uh, that Riley had previously O'Reilly had previously and uh, Tucker was able to hold it down for about six years six and a half years and then he was out and so here you've got these two people both formerly of, of Fox and now in this next clip let's take a listen they're going to talk about what's next in uh, cable. Uh, and uh, what's next just in news in general for the public.
2: I didn't care. I had been there for 20 years. I was time for a change. When I started cable news, it was nothing, but I knew it was gonna be huge. And then I said, you know what's gonna be the next huge? Alternative independent media.
1: Yes.
0: And I just
2: scampered on over to it.
0: Well, uh, really, O'Reilly had no choice. He was let go. Uh, He had worked at a number of the major networks in the past. His resume was kind of full. He wasn't going to recycle and go back uh, cap in hand to some of those older networks that he'd been a part of, and he has now done very well. Uh, He claims that uh, his uh, O'Reilly news outlet is uh, extremely successful. We wish him all the best. And of course, Tucker has formed a new news and information organization. He's also done what O'Reilly did. He's pulled uh, some people that worked with him formerly uh, at Fox News. O'Reilly did the same thing. And now the uh, Tucker on Twitter is doing extremely well. The interview with President Trump has brought in more viewers than the population of the United States of America. So viewers around the world Have been watching that. So, what they're both saying is that alternative independent media is truly the next frontier. And why? Well, audiences, I believe, are feeling betrayed and also lied to by the legacy media. They don't trust the cable networks anymore. The cable networks seem to be bought and paid for by Big Pharma and other advertisers. And there's a difference with these independent sources. Uh, they're able to be more selective in terms of their advertisers. And can they can even, because they're small operations with low overhead, uh, like both O'Reilly and Tucker, uh, they can either get direct donations from their viewers or they can have other sort of merchandise or product that they can offer to their viewers, premium content. And in, in addition, Uh, They can uh, cultivate their own advertisers, and uh, they have more control over that, which is unusual because in the typical television market, the talent doesn't have any say for who the advertisers are. That's the revenue-producing organization of of the television stations and the TV networks, and it's completely uh, separate from the side of the uh, network that produces content. So this is the next big change, the alternative independent media, and uh, it's exciting to see it happening right before our eyes. Moving to the next piece, we're looking at the second Republican debate, and for a lot of people, it was just a real snoozer the leading 2024 Republican uh, presidential candidates, they went head-to-head, and that was on Wednesday, September the 27th, 9 p.m. at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, Simi Valley, California. And so the last debate, if you remember, it was in Milwaukee, and the uh, big news was that Trump didn't show up. Well, he didn't do it again, For this second debate, and why should he when he's 30, 40 points out uh, ahead in the polls compared to these various candidates? So let's take a listen to this first piece, which has to do with the second Republican debate. And this is from a local uh, TV station, WILX News 10 in California.
2: Tonight, Republican presidential hopefuls will take the stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California for the second primary debate. Seven candidates qualified this time around. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is the only candidate who was on the stage for the last debate who did not qualify this time. The current GOP frontrunner former President Donald Trump, is skipping the debate again. Instead, he is meeting with auto workers on strike in Michigan and will give a speech before his rivals take the stage.
0: Now Trump brilliantly uh, has made a play of his own which is to draw his own, own audience and in order to you know he's he's going to Michigan he's looking at these different uh, primaries that are going to be happening around the country and he's speaking directly to voters and in this case of course uh, we're hearing about the United Auto Workers strike. So he's going up there and having these conversations with these striking auto workers. A lot of it has to do with EV taking over uh, the car industry, uh, replacing uh, the gas-powered vehicles. And uh, apparently, they're saying 30 40% of the workforce could be reduced because the EV cars are much simpler to make Uh, that will be a real problem because the EV cars are also far more expensive than gas-powered vehicles. So did the public learn anything new from debate number two? Well, not really. There was some different quips and uh, lines that came out. And this is what the uh, candidates are looking for. They're looking for sound bites to be played for the following week. But they, this isn't really anything that enlightens us in terms of issues. Uh, silly little sound bites that are 10 seconds, 15 seconds, don't really give us a lot of depth of Content, a lot of depth of thought in terms of what the candidates are thinking or how they would operate in the White House if they were elected. Now, what we did learn is that Trump is completely rewriting the presidential campaign playbook. In other words, if you're way out ahead, just don't show up and just continue to run your own campaign. Uh, We also learned that Fox News is no longer a conservative organization that can be trusted, and this is what a lot of people are saying. This is uh, something that has changed uh, over the last four years. That They basically, once Trump lost the election, they threw him under the bus in terms of uh, they didn't give him much airtime and they uh, didn't give him, um, it was almost as if Trump wasn't even the president. They, they didn't, didn't want to speak his name, uh, even on uh, Fox News as the five. It just uh, became a taboo topic, the past president of the United States. And that was just so sad. And the irony of all of this is that now Fox News has been begging for Trump to show up at uh, debate number one and debate number two. Why? Because Fox controls those, and Fox controls the sales of the advertising, uh, the lion's share of it. Some of it they have to give back to local networks. uh, But the lion's share of the advertising, they control it. And without Trump being there, there is not much of an audience. They know it, so Trump is really hitting Fox uh, right where it hurts in the pocketbook. Now, Trump went on to Michigan to speak directly to United Auto Workers uh, in the area, and let's take a listen to this follow-up clip, uh, which has to do with Trump visiting and delivering a speech at an auto parts supplier in Michigan, and this is cut number uh, 2B.
2: Trump's visit comes after President Joe Biden made an historic visit to Michigan on Tuesday by becoming the first sitting president to join an active strike. Trump spoke in Macomb County at a non-union auto manufacturer called Drake Enterprises. During his address last night, Trump expressed support for the union, for the union's cause as they fight for a pay raise, a shorter work week, and better benefits. But UAW President Sean Fain is questioning the sincerity of Trump's support. Yesterday Joe Biden came to Michigan to pose for photos at the picket line. But it's his policies that send Michigan auto workers to the unemployment line. I side with the auto workers of America and with those who want to make America great again, and I always will. My pledge to every automaker is this: a vote for President Trump means the future of the automobile will be made in
0: America, where it should be. So there we go. Uh, those were some uh, cuts from Trump uh, speaking directly to the auto workers, and again, he's against a number of these Biden policies, especially the uh, ramping up of EV uh, cars and the EV industry, uh, which is going to put auto workers out of work. So Trump is calling out. Mr. Biden, he's saying Biden's policies are putting people into the unemployment line. And Trump is saying, listen, I'm going to back the American worker and I'm going to back the car manufacturers to keep that in the United States of America. Make no mistake, the EV automobile industry will make China even richer Because China controls many rare earth materials that are part of the manufacturing process for the batteries that go into these EV cars. And so once again, we'd be shipping away more and more jobs outside of the United States of America. And that's what's really going on here. Uh, So Trump uh, is boldly... um, Getting ahead of the issue, and what's really pathetic is that uh, B- uh, Biden, the day prior, uh, you know, his uh, campaign said, "Oh, we got, we got to uh, get ahead of this." You know, Trump's going to make a speech uh, in Michigan, so uh, so Biden goes down there and does a little photo op uh, by the picket line. And really, he spent more time in Michigan uh, having conversations with reporters on the tarmac when his plane landed uh, than he did on the picket line in Michigan. And Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience both in the United States and internationally. Here's a few quick comments from some of our listeners who have found us on the social media app Getter. Granny With A Gun writes, Bidenomics is killing America. It's a communist takeover. And we are allowing it to happen by accepting everything that this senile fool is doing while Obama's shadow government is getting the job done as usual. Thank you, Granny uh, with a Gun. And I've seen her on Real America's Voice And uh, she is one of my heroes. She's great. Thank you for that input. And Linda G233, she writes, Watching Dope Stick, The Truth About OxyContin. And that's a... uh I went looking for it. That is a, a documentary, but it's uh, I, I couldn't access the documentary since I'm not a Hulu subscriber. So you have to be on Hulu to see that. So I went digging around and found a Joe Rogan interview with a former big pharma sales rep, and it disclosed possibly some of the same information, uh, but it disclosed that uh, there are shocking details about how OxyContin was rolled out and how addictive it is compared to prior pain killers that were on the market. So thank you for your input, everyone. I do enjoy reading those uh, comments on Getter. Uh, Please keep sending them in. And we'll uh, keep reading them on the air. Finally, a big shout out to those listeners who are now following us on Getter. I do enjoy receiving your feedback, reading those messages on the air. Again, you can follow us on Getter, just go to at Jeffrey K. Lyons, Lyons with a Y. And for more information, visit our website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. Also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please, five-star rate, follow, and send our podcast link to two to three like-minded friends and that's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars Posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. And now, moving on to our next piece. It has to do with the co-founder of Greenpeace, one of the world's most uh, widely known uh, ecological and environmental organizations Co-founder of the organization is Dr. Patrick Moore. Let's give a listen to this cut, cut number 3A.
2: Most of the scare stories, in fact, I think pretty well all of them, are actually based on things that are either invisible or so remote, or in the future, which is definitely so remote, that nobody can see it for themselves. Observation and verification of that observation is the basis of science. If the general public can't verify how many polar bears there are, or whether the Great Barrier Reef and other coral reefs are healthy or not, then they depend on the activists, the media, the politicians, and the scientists on serial government grants for their information. And all of those people, they're making their living from this, and multiple billions of dollars are involved, and they want us to believe their scare stories. Because if it wasn't scary, it wouldn't get in the newspaper.
0: So this is Dr. Patrick Moore's claim. If it wasn't scary, then the stories wouldn't get into the newspaper. Now, of course, nobody reads newspapers anymore, but what he's talking about is if it wasn't scary, these stories wouldn't get into the mass media. They wouldn't get onto your iPads and they wouldn't get into your uh, mobile phones and they wouldn't get on your streaming media. At home, whatever news sources you're listening to. Now, who is Dr. Moore? He's the co-founder of Greenpeace. He served for nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada, seven years as a director of Greenpeace International. He's led many campaigns. Dr. Moore was the driving force for shaping policy and direction for 15 years, while Greenpeace became the world's largest environmental activist organization. So he's got quite a bit of creds. He's got a PhD. It's in ecology. He was the vice president, Environment, uh, Water, Furnace International, Manufacturer of Geothermal Heat Pumps, VP, Industry and Government Affairs for Next Energy Geothermal, uh, Chairman of Sustainable Forestry Committee of Alliance of BC. That's British Columbia, 1991 to 2002. He led a process of developing principles of sustainable forestry. So if anybody knows about the environmentalist uh, milieu and what is going on around the world, uh, it would be uh, Dr. Patrick Moore. And what he's saying is that this is very uh, important. What he's saying is that a tectonic shift uh, has taken place in the environmental industry. It's no longer a group of uh, just rogue activists that are standing up for forests and a cleaner earth. Now it is a multi, multi billion dollar and even trillion dollar industry. And so people uh, are making their living off of being experts and going around the world and writing papers and being employed at universities and doing research. And so they have to keep driving this story. They have to keep uh, upping the ante and making it more and more scary. If they don't, then they don't get on the front page of a newspaper is what he's saying. Of course, uh, in terms of Google We're not talking about front page of news news, uh, papers. We're talking about uh, getting on the top of the Google search in certain categories about the climate or the environment. Uh, That's what uh, they are looking for. And the scarier the story, the better the chance that they'll be at the top of that Internet search. Now, let's pivot over to the United States Congress. Now, this is Representative Doug LaMalfa, and he's Republican, California. He questioned a number of witnesses at a House Transportation Committee recently, and this was an Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, that they were discussing. And so, these experts are there; they are uh, hired guns for the environmental industry. And this is really interesting. It went out April 11th, 2023, not too long ago. But this particular video went viral, 2.18 million views. And you would think that these hired guns, that these environmental activists could answer a very simple question, but they struggled and they weren't able to answer this question Uh, Let's take a listen to this interview. Again, it was in U.S. Congress, April 11th, 2023. And you're going to hear Representative Doug LaMalfa asking the different panelists or experts uh, questions.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. (coughs) Panelists, let me just go right down the line, real fast. What percent of our atmosphere is CO2? Take your best guess. You don't have to be accurate. All down the online.
2: Repeat that question.
1: What percent of our atmosphere is CO2, carbon dioxide? Wild guess, it's okay. I'll buy it 5%. 5? I'll just follow you. I'll
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll just, seven. Uh, that's my favorite number.
2: I'll see their 5 and, um, suggest that we know that transportation causes 49% of CO2, so that's why we're all working on...
1: No. energy
0: transition. All
1: right. So what number you think it is? Eh, five. Five? How about you? I didn't hear you, Mr. No. Dreher. Seven. Seven. Did you have one, uh, Mr. Boyd?
2: So we got a five, seven.
1: Uh, <laughs> price is right.
2: Eight. I'm okay. going to get the high end.
1: All right, well, I I appreciate that, and I don't mean to put you on ice, I ask a lot of people that, because all we hear is climate change, climate change, CO2, CO2, I heard a couple of you on the panel saying, you're looking to change your vehicles to electric, even though we don't have the electric grid, and me as a farmer, I wouldn't be real happy about running out and replacing $300,000, $500,000, $1 million pieces of equipment, because someone wants wants it to be electric. The answer is 0.04%, not 1%, not a half of a percent, it's 0.04%. And it's gone up from 0.03 over the last couple decades. This is what we're being all contorted into doing is this tiny change in CO2. If we go, if we get below 0.02, plant life starts dying off.
0: So why are we panicking about CO2 in the atmosphere? It is currently 004 percent. And these people on this panel that were before Representative Doug LaMalfa, representative from California, they had absolutely no idea what percentage of CO2 was in the atmosphere. And we're talking about that portion of the atmosphere that is commonly referred to as greenhouse gases. They thought it was 4%. One said 5%. I think another one said uh, maybe 7% or 8%. It it became kind of a silly exercise. A price is right. They had absolutely no idea. Now, sometimes you're going to hear another number thrown out there. They'll say, well, it's 400 parts per million why do they do that? Well, because 400 sounds like a much bigger number than 0.04. But when you do the math, 400 parts per million is 0.04%. It's very small. What is the primary greenhouse gas? Most people don't know this. The primary greenhouse gas is a really scary gas. It's called water. That is the primary gas, which we call a greenhouse gas. The climate activism industry is now worth about $1 trillion. And here's the point that both representative Doug LaMalfa was making and Dr. Moore, Dr. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, they were both saying something very similar that without a climate scare, the people that are pushing this story, they they really they're not able to sell it. So it went up from point zero three to point zero four over the last. So many decades. But here's the thing. What did Representative Lamalfa point out? If it goes down to 0.02, plants start dying. Plants die. We're toast. Human beings need plants. You know, you might say, oh, we, we eat animals, but the cows and the chickens. They're eating food, which is derived from plants. Oh, but we could eat bugs. Well, bugs eat food, which is derived from plants. We need plants. Plants take in carbon dioxide and they give off oxygen. If we don't have oxygen, we're toast. You know, this is high school science. This is very basic stuff. The climate narrative is a sophisticated government system. It creates jobs. It creates money flowing for those people that work in those jobs. And then those people sell the scary stories. The scary stories reinforce the narrative. The narrative reinforces the need for those people to work in those jobs. So you see there's a circle there. Scary story, hire people in the government, government writes more scary stories, and then their paychecks and their jobs are secure. It's it's all about job security. That's really what it comes down to. It creates jobs, power, influence for politicians. Remember, it started with different politicians. It didn't start with climate scientists decades ago. There were different politicians like Al Gore who pushed these different terms, carbon credit, carbon footprint. And now they become just common terms that we use and throw around like, like we all know what they are. We don't really know what a lot of these things are. We, it's not something you can see or touch, but we sound important and we sound like we know what we're talking about when we bring them up a conversation with others, if I could give out any homework, and I can't, but I used to do this as a university professor, just ask a friend or two this coming week, how much carbon dioxide is in the greenhouse gases? What percentage of carbon dioxide is greenhouse gas? Just, just ask some Friends, and see if you hear any accurate answers that come close to 0.04%. That'd be kind of a fun exercise, maybe something you could try as an icebreaker. Perhaps yes, perhaps no, but it might be fun. Well, here's our final story for the day. And something really big happened recently in Dallas, Texas. Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, and that's not the guitar player Eric Johnson. This is the politician Eric Johnson, who was the mayor of Dallas. He recently was reelected, but he made a big announcement. Let's listen to this. This is cut number four
1: backlash and some pats on the back for the mayor of dallas texas tonight Eric Johnson announcing that he is switching parties from Democrat to Republican in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. He slammed the party which he was elected uh, by saying, the future of America's great urban centers depends on the willingness of the nation's mayors to champion law and order and practice fiscal conservatism. Our cities desperately need the genuine commitment to these principles as opposed to the inconsistent poll-driven commitment of many Democrats that has long been a defining characteristic of the GOP.
0: Well, Mayor Eric Johnson of Dallas, yes, he did recently change from the Democrat to the Republican Party, but they didn't bring it out in this uh, piece that we just heard. And that was from CNN Politics, September 23rd, 2023. In that Wall Street Journal article, he also mentioned that the Democrat policies, quote, exacerbated crime and homelessness in Dallas, Texas. And he's leaving the Democrat Party because he does not feel that uh, a continuation of those policies is in the benefit of the people of Texas and specifically the people that live and work in Dallas, Texas. So, uh, good job, uh, Eric Johnson. Good job, person of the week, here on Narrative Wars. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you for that, guys. I always appreciate them standing by, and uh, they, they always seem to come through. Uh, the future of America's great urban centers depends on the willingness of the nation's mayors to champion law and order and practice fiscal conservatism. That is also what Johnson wrote. Uh, he said that American cities need Republicans and Republicans need American cities. Ouch, that must really hurt if you're a Democrat. And yeah, it does. Look at this. Johnson's announcement makes him the only Did you get that? The only Republican among the mayors of the 10 most populous cities in the United States of America. You know, sometimes it can get kind of discouraging. You're watching and listening to the news uh, day after day after day. It's always shootings in Chicago, shootings in Detroit, uh, riots in Pennsylvania, uh, in the large cities, riots in Baltimore, Los Angeles. Uh, Oregon, Seattle. These are all blue cities. Blue, 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 blue. Houston, blue city. So here is a city also in Texas, Dallas, Texas, and the mayor who was elected Democrat gets reelected. Johnson was reelected for a four-year term, and that was in May He had 98% of the vote, just an absolute landslide. And he has now switched to becoming a Republican. Uh, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott welcomed Johnson to the new party affiliation, Uh, said Governor Abbott, quote, Texas is getting more red every day, unquote. Uh, Abbott put that up in a post on X. And uh, he also said, quote, he's a pro-law enforcement and won't tolerate leftist agendas. Well, let's hope that Eric Johnson uh, receives all the best uh, support and that he has a prosperous time. Look, it's only going to benefit the people of Texas and the people that live, again, that live and work in Dallas, Texas. Well, wrapping it up now, let's turn to The Bigger Picture. Remember those dystopian movies like The Net? It was a 1995 thriller where the protagonist, played by Sandra Bullock, well, she had her life destroyed when her digital identity was erased. The movie was, as is often the case, more than fiction, and somewhat prescient of things to come. This leads us to today's Bigger Picture. It's a story that unfolds much like Sandra Bullock's character. But in this case, our story is true. A few years ago, a close friend of mine, let's call her Jane, relayed the following tale of the undead. Jane said that her mother had passed away and that she had received a phone call from Social Security to confirm her mother's passing. A few days later, Jane received another phone call, and this time it came from her financial planner. The financial planner called Jane and said, Oh, good. I was worried about you. To which Jane replied, why were you worried? I'm just fine. And the planner responded, our company regularly receives from the government lists of names of people who have passed away. And if the social security number matches a client, we reach out to that family. Jane responded in the words of the writer Mark Twain, the report of my recent death has been greatly exaggerated. Well, of course, the next day, Jane went straight to this local social security office with her identification in hand in order to straighten out the whole misunderstanding. But unfortunately, the local social security office, they weren't immediately convinced nor impressed that an error had occurred or that Jane's story was even accurate. This set off a series of other appointments with other government officials, a U.S. senator, and finally the supervisor of the local social security office, which made the initial phone call to confirm the passing of Jane's mother. Jane then wrote a number of letters and handed them out to different government officials every time she told her story, and she explained the sordid tale Of her inaccurate demise. Well, as it turned out, finally, a Social Security supervisor read Jane's letter with the explanation of what happened, looked at the identification that Jane produced, and fortunately, this supervisor believed Jane's story and admitted that an error had occurred. Jane's mother did pass away recently, but Jane was most assuredly alive, and as it turned out, the error was clerical. The supervisor said that upon inquiry, she discovered the person made the mistake, but that that person just happened to be on vacation. The good news was that the supervisor could override the offending keystrokes and that Jane could be resurrected from the dead in the Social Security database. Well, does this happen to other people? Unfortunately, this happens to thousands of Americans every year as tales of the undead. The error is so common that there is a FAQ question on the Social Security Administration website that addresses the question, quote, What should I do if I'm incorrectly listed as deceased in the social security records? Here is the answer to the question which should assuage the emotions of the general public. Answer, if you suspect you've been incorrectly listed as deceased on your social security record, please visit your local social security office as soon as possible. Please make sure to bring one of the following pieces of identification. And then the website lists a number of different ID that can be brought. At the top of the list is a U.S. passport, followed by driver's license, employee ID card, military record, school ID, and lots more. So what is our takeaway from this strange yet true tale of a government which we pay our taxes to regularly and which also kills its citizens routinely in an electronic database if social security kills you don't panic if you're still breathing thinking and talking to others the government is probably lying to you secondly keep multiple forms of identification in place hopefully in a safety deposit box, or some other secure location. The government wants to see that passport, driver's license, or other form of ID in order to bring you back from the dead. Your smiling face at the Social Security office window is not going to convince them that you're alive. Fortunately, the Social Security Administration, they've thought of everything And they offer consoling words once your identity has been resurrected from the dead and restored. In fact, here's the exact wording on the Social Security Administration website. When we correct your record, we will offer you a letter that you can give to banks, doctors, or others to show that your death report was an error. This letter is called, quote, Erroneous death case, third-party contact notice. And there it is. Don't expect an apology from your government. Don't expect words of reassurance or any sympathy that your life was on hold for a few weeks while you scrambled around from government office to government office trying to convince the government that you're alive. And there it is. At the end of the rainbow, you receive this consolation letter. And here is the piece de resistance. Just think, someone who's a lot smarter than the average American who's paid a lot of money to come up with the title of this official letter to hand out to your doctor, banker, employer and others. Remember, the letter is called the Erroneous Death Case Third-Party Contact Notice. Kind of sounds like a parking ticket or some petty misdemeanor charge, doesn't it? And that's a comforting thought. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired hey.